as I did for years with visitors coming and going, sometimes the first grade teacher with the little kids going through like this, and I'm seeing the little kiddies go by while I'm looking into a big black camera trying to concentrate on what I'm saying, and only doing it at their beck and call when they can clear the decks and when they have time, and then oftentimes they will say, well, we can't do it now because such and such a network program is coming in and we have to take that and that preempted our studio time, and it was really a headache. And little by little, some of my very uh, precious uh, mementos from European trips, like a couple of my steins that I picked up in Switzerland or Europe, disappeared from my set. Several volumes of my encyclopedia disappeared. I would take armloads of booklets to have over there to display, and they were curious. And some of them, I'm glad of that. I'd like to have those disappear. But little by little, my booklet stocks would dwindle and I would be over there ready to do a program, and I would want a particular booklet, and I would say, oh, I need this booklet. We look at a box, and it wasn't there. So on numerous occasions, I would have someone call and tell my son David, and he'd grab the booklet, and I'd have to wait for 30 minutes for him to get the booklet and come all the way around the loop to Channel 7 to give it to me so I could hold it up to show the people on the telecast. To make a long story short, I really dreaded to go back to that environment when even though we really didn't go shopping for television equipment, it was more or less thrust upon us by purchasing the equipment at a very, very fine rate. We were able to set up our own television studios, which we're in process of doing now. It'll take time, but we will eventually do. Right there in the office building. Well, it deprived all of you folks of that lovely environment we've been meeting in for the last five years. As I say, it was kind of a domino effect because when we moved the television studio equipment into the present radio studio, that will move about three ladies out of there who worked with Ian Houghton in the mail reading and mail processing. Well, we were already falling all over ourselves in both the audio and the visual tape departments, as well as the bulk mailing department, all of which were housed in one of the temporary buildings out to the rear. So they are moving into the big room, which will now be a workroom, and you'll be amazed at how it will completely fill it up. And then Ian Houghton and the girls and ladies who process the mail will be moving into that temporary room and out of the radio studio, which will now be just chock full with both radio and television equipment. Now, for a happy announcement, we have found about 16 and one-half acres out in the country, right on the shores, one portion of it actually a lake lot across a small paved road, which is part of the property, is on beautiful Lake Palestine. Now, in East Texas, they insist on calling it Palestine, like Holstein for cattle instead of Holstein. But maybe they're correct, because actually the word Palestine really came from the Philistines, or the people of the present race that we call Palestinians, that David had such trouble with way back generations ago. But be that as it may, on beautiful Lake Palestine, I insist on calling it. About 16 and a half acres, hardwoods, fairly level ground on very high ground, and it was listed for 165000 and we believe we are buying it for $100,000, 20% down, owner financing at 10%. So we believe with about a $20,000 check and around 700 and some dollars a month, we will be amortizing the debt on a piece of property of about 16 and a half acres with 900 feet frontage on paved farm market 344. 
Now, that is the main road that you go straight south to the bridge across Lake Palestine going to Coffee City. There's only one blinking red or yellow light, and that's at road 344 that cuts off to where I live over at Emerald Bay. And about a half a mile or so, maybe as much as a mile, left on that road is where that property is, just barely west of the wharf and a neck of the lake where there's a big marina and a lot of boats and everything there. And it really is just a beautiful, a stunning piece of property with a lot of highway frontage. Now, what we want to do is to put up a conventional frame building large enough for this church congregation and about double or triple its size to meet him out there on those beautiful grounds. Back perhaps to the rear in an area that will probably be even concealed from the main road. Then go across the lake and on the waterfront property build us a beautiful pavilion like a large gazebo and some picnic tables and also some picnic type areas near the building, have it air conditioned with facilities indoors and everything and use it temporarily for a period of time for the church to meet in because we're paying 700 a month for the women's club. So by paying the exact same amount of money, we can go out there and build ourselves a church building for about the same amount of money as two of those temporary buildings behind our office. Then when we sell our office in another year or two or three or four or whatever, whenever we do, which eventually we will have to do, we hope that the economy, and especially the Tyler economy and Tyler commercial economy, comes back to the point that we can recoup from our building what we must have, and uh, we don't want to just break even on it. Hopefully, we can uh, make a little bit of money on the transaction. And at that time, having that property, hopefully at that time, free and clear or close to it, we will take the money we received from the building and put up our own facilities out there, which will be probably twice the size of the present one which will be a beautiful building for the offices, the television, the bulk mailing, and everything. The only difference is a few more minutes drive from the post office. I dread changing our address to uh, Bullard, Texas. That's the address out there. Now, Flint doesn't sound too bad, but Bullard I'm not quite so sure of. I think that we could probably just send a state truck in Highway 155 to the main post office and handle it that way. I hope that by that time we will have an educational academy that will be in full swing. What I want to talk to you about today is the church, and the church, and the church. First of all, church. It said in Matthew 16 and verse 18, I will build my church. Now, all of you know that that is ecclesia. That the Greek word merely means, as Mr. Dart has pointed out in a particular sermon on the assembly, an assembly or a group. But now you're aware of the term party as applied to political parties. Are all groups or all assemblies or all parties or any other word you would like to use which connotes a group of individuals always assembled together within four walls? Do they always live in the same community? Do they always live in the same state or even the same nation? That was not what Jesus implied. If we drive down the street and we say, there's a church, that is really a misnomer. There is a building in which an assembly of people who have taken the name of thus and such might happen to meet or gather or assemble, 
but they had begun to call a church building by the name church. Also, people use the word church to mean the Baptist church, meaning all Baptist churches all over the United States, when in fact there are hundreds of them and dozens of them and many different structures and organizations and not ever the same shall meet. There are many Baptists that simply don't even talk to each other. Or the Methodist church, and by that they mean, may mean the entire Methodist church, but the same comment applies. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I will build my church? Why build a church? That didn't mean he had a mouthful of nails and a hammer, and he was going to go out and nail up tongue and groove and mortise and tenon boards together and build an old flatboard unpainted building somewhere and herd a bunch of people in it and start leading music and preaching sermons. It meant I will put together, I will call out, I will empower my assembly of individuals. Now, I made very clear, as we will see in Matthew 28, verse 18, that that assembly would be scattered all over the world. And as a matter of fact, he was the one who said, get out of here, go, get scattered, take off in all directions of the compass from Jerusalem, and go into all nations preaching the gospel. He did not intend to establish a local congregation in Jerusalem for a lot of people to get together in fellowship and bath in weekly assemblies and enjoy special music and announcements and coffee and cookies. And that was it. That's what Jesus had in mind. No, he said to his disciples, verse 18 of Matthew 28, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations. Now, we know a little bit about church history from Acts and reading what Luke wrote about how long they tarried in Jerusalem following the day of Pentecost. And we see that actually, in order for them to finally be obedient to that command, God had to give them a little helping hand. It took persecution to force many of those people out of Jerusalem where they had settled. They were not that willing to immediately just take upon themselves a little bit of baggage, kiss their wives and family and mother and father goodbye, and get on one of the ships to Tarshish and sail to the British Isles. It was not basically in their blood. We human beings don't normally do that unless there's some great divine sign, as what happened to Abraham, for example, who was told to leave his own family and go to a nation that God would show him. So persecution scattered people who literally fled for their lives, and that resulted in the preaching of the gospel all over the eastern uh, Mediterranean world. Go you therefore and educate, teach, preach to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now again, I've commented, you don't drag people kicking and screaming to the local horse trough and plunge them under. So in order to baptize them, they had to have willing candidates, and in order to make them willing, they had to be heard, and in order to be heard, they had to have a place preach. They had to have a message that was attractive. They had to be the kind of people who would get the attention of individuals, either by being asked questions or by simply going to a place. A family would be there. They would ask them if they could do anything for their sick child. A fantastic healing or a miracle would take place. They would begin to expound who they were, who they represented that they had lived and worked and eaten and slept with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom they had seen die on a stake, and whom they had seen materialize through a wall, whom they had seen alive on many occasions, 
They would relate all that happened on the day of Pentecost, how the crowns of fire were dancing on the heads of the apostles, and they would tell them of all the miracles they had seen, and they would preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And little by little, converts began to be baptized all over the mountains of Switzerland, in the northern provinces of Italy, in North Africa, in Spain, in the British Isles. We're in possession of books and journals that very strongly seem to imply that Joseph of Arimathea was one of the early converts, and that Joseph, who donated his very expensive tomb for the body of Jesus Christ, may have been one of the earliest Christian arrivals in the British Isles. There is strong inference, and it's believed by many thousands of Britons, that Paul himself visited the British Isles on at least one occasion. And many people insist, because of his writing, that he visited Spain. So little by little, the apostles simply disappear from history. The book of Acts begins to relate what happened with Peter and James and some of the others. And then very quickly, in the 8th and ninth chapters, when Saul is converted, the only other time we hear of Peter is in the 10th chapter at the house of Cornelius, when he has his eyes open that God is going to send the Holy Spirit to Gentiles, and Peter disappears from the history of the Bible with the exception of the letters that he writes in which he gives us a clue that he was over in present-day Iraq in the city that is now called perhaps Baghdad or nearby there and wrote a letter from Babylon because there was a large Jewish community and Peter was sent to the Jews and Paul was sent to the Gentiles. So they scattered and they went all over the Mediterranean world, all over Europe, and eventually all around the world, down through many, many generations. And he said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, to refresh your memory, all of church literature from the time of the close of the first four Gospels is basically church history, because it is the history of Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles, writing, oftentimes hundreds of miles distant, to churches that were very loosely tied to him, only because, he said, as a father in the gospel, he had been there, he had preached, he had become known to those people, and he had ordained from time to time, when he felt they were qualified, young men as evangelists, Timothy, Titus, some others who are mentioned in the Bible, he traveled for a long time with a man named Barnabas until they had a falling out. He traveled around with a man named Secundus, a man named Gaius, a man named Silvanus, who may also have been an apostle, as was Barnabas. And the Bible plainly says that Barnabas was an apostle. And even though Barnabas and Paul had a grievous falling out, a, differing, a difference of opinion over a personnel decision, that does happen. It happened then, it happens today, and it probably will happen again. The gospel was still being preached because they went their separate ways, a little upset with each other, and the church grew. Now, of course, that couldn't happen today, could it? Well, it could. It should. And, but in some church organizations it can't because they would excommunicate on the basis of any kind of a difference of opinion, even if it were an administrative decision as opposed to a doctrinal statement of faith. And that's sad. We'll get to that a little bit later on. In Luke 24, verses 46 and 7, are some very...
rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. Now, of course, we know in Matthew 4:17 it says that Jesus went everywhere preaching the gospel and saying, Repent and believe the gospel, and that John the Baptist said, Repent ye and believe the gospel, and that the first words out of those apostles' mouths often was the word repent, explaining what is sin, explaining judgment that was coming, explaining what are the punishments of sin, and why people ought to repent then explaining the great blessedness, the relief of tortured conscience, the restoring of reputation, of character, the feeling of a load being lifted from your shoulders when all of the evil, rotten, filthy things you've said and done and thought are erased from God's records in heaven above, and you have forgiveness of sin that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name, I've stressed for many, many years, among all nations, and there are hundreds of them, beginning at Jerusalem, and of course going out from there, and you are witnesses of these things. Now, as Jesus said in John, the 15th chapter, we know that it is a spiritual organism. He said, I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. A vine has branches. That is Christ's analogy. It is not my analogy standing here in East Texas in the women's club with a small congregation as opposed to the so-called parent organization, which it is not, in truth, because there is a parent organization that is more ancient than that one that is still alive and well, thank you very much, all over the United States and in uh, Canada and Mexico and in the Philippines and Africa and all around the world called the Church of God Seventh Day. And they had a parent organization, and they had a parent organization, and so did they. And you go back to the Lollards, and they had a parent organization, and you go all the way back to Peter de Bruys and Henri and the Henricians and the Bogomils and their book called The Key of Truth, and they were Sabbath keepers, and they had a parent organization. And you find that down through generation after generation, there were from time to time organizations under different men that had basically a 60, 70, or 80 percent body of beliefs similar to the Worldwide Church of God, nay, Radio Church of God, nay, Church of God Seventh-day Oregon Conference or the Church of God International, or the Church of God the Eternal, or other churches of God, names taken by individuals who have been members of various of these organizations and who have incorporated and become a church organization that's distinct from the church. It's distinct from the church. It is utterly impossible for one man to gather together from Africa to Lithuania, and from Azerbaijan to California, every member of the true Church of God into one organization. In the first place, some of those organizations are not allowed in some other nation. I've explained that before, and I won't take an hour to go into it. I had, a, I had to go down to Mexico and organize and incorporate as a cultural institute. The Worldwide Church of God has never been incorporated in Mexico. It's not in Mexico. Now, they can say, I'm a member of the Worldwide Church of God, but that's artificial. No, they're not. 
they're a member of a cultural institute that has documents filed in Mexico City. But they believe the doctrines of, and they look toward the leadership of, the worldwide church. Well, people in Ephesus, and Thessalonica, and Rome, and in faraway England, and in Spain, and North Africa, and all over the provinces of Asia, looked toward the Apostle Paul, and the evangelists, and the young men helping him as their church leadership, sometimes. And sometimes they looked toward local leadership. And sometimes they looked elsewhere when some other man came down the road and began teaching them something, and they kind of followed him for a while. As you read in the church history of Paul's writings, continually struggling to tell these churches who were scattered to keep the faith. And I'll touch on that again in a moment when I talk about foreign churches and foreign nations and the Church of God International as it exists in the Philippines, in South Africa, in France, in England, in Canada, and in other nations around the world. So the spiritual organism, Christ used the analogy of a vine. You ever raise a vine? You ever raise grapes? Now, grapes, you know, can grow almost like a tree, but a vine is a vine. And it has roots that go down, usually, to one great, long, main trunk. And it doesn't lie there like a gigantic snake with just one huge, long, slick branch. Not even a branch, because a branch is not a branch unless it's a branch. The word branch means a branch, like a fork, a bifurcation of the vine. So a vine doesn't look like a long tube, does it? The analogy that Christ used is a root, a trunk, and branches. Now this branch is attached to that branch, right? Well, yeah, but not out here at the ends, is it? No, not at all. It's attached through the vine. This branch is separate from that branch in one sense, isn't it? Because it gets sap from the vine, and so does this branch get sap and nutrition from the vine, and they're both attached to the vine. Now, who's the vine? Armstrong? Herbert Armstrong? Ted Armstrong? Joseph Tkach? Who is the vine? My Bible says, Jesus Christ, red letters, first personal quotation, I am the true vine. He insists that he is the main trunk. Can I be attached to that trunk and claim to be a branch in God's word? Or am I the trunk? That makes me the vine. I cannot pretend to be the trunk or the vine. I can only pretend to be, and that's not a pretense, but a statement, one of the branches. Every branch in me that bears not fruit he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it. That is, he trims it, he prunes it, and he will dig and fertilize, and he will work with the main trunk, that it may bring forth more fruit. Well, he gave that example, and in verse 4 he said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. It isn't severed, lying out there in the field bearing fruit. It is attached, and the sap or the spirit flows through it from the roots up the main trunk or the vine out to the branches. And that's the way it bears fruit. Except you abide in the vine, you can no more can ye, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, he insists. Now, you individuals are also branches. You're just smaller branches. There are larger branches, and then secondary, and tertiary, and quaternary, and so on. And finally, there are the little bitty branches and the leaves. And individuals are branches, he said to these disciples. For without me, you can do nothing. Now, I said I was going to talk about the church. That that I just described 
is the church. Lo and behold, many, many years ago, when Dr. Benjamin Ray was still alive in the early 1960s, we discovered that down in the nation of Chile, there were a group of Sabbath-keeping Christians who spoke Spanish, who'd studied the Spanish Bible, and had come out of the Roman Catholic Church. And for generations, these people in a small little village had studied the Word of God, had come to understand the Sabbath, tithing, the annual holy days, most of the true doctrines of the Church of God from their own study. Where did you get the truth that you understand? Well, basically from your own study. You didn't just swallow it. You didn't one day get a piece of literature from my father or from me and then take your Bible and throw it in the garbage can and sit there and study that literature. Did you? You studied with your Bible beside the literature, I hope, and you proved whether or not what the literature said was true. So, where did you get your truth? Did you get it out of the Bible or out of the literature? Well, you got it out of the Bible, because the literature is based upon the Bible. So, your source, your ultimate authority, is the same as those people who were indigenous and who, as it were, sprang out of the soil in Chile so long ago and understand the truth of God. Now, if they baptized each other, if one of them through his personality emerged as a leader and began to speak and to teach and others came to him because he was better educated, because he had a certain personality or leadership or charisma or magnetism, and he began to baptize people or he ordained a couple of people, was that authorized? He didn't come trotting up to Pasadena to get credentialed. Is that authorized? How dare he do that? They're just as much a Christian as anybody in this room. Because the Holy Spirit of God is not confined to a piece of paper and a paper clip and a stamp of the Secretary of State and a blue ribbon. It isn't confined to a notary public or a computer file or a mailing list or some human being. I cannot gather all the people of the Church of God scattered all around the world into one organization. Now let me talk about when I said the Church, we've talked about the spiritual Church. Let me now talk about the legal Church. We incorporated as the Church of God International in 1978, in July of that year, about the 21st. That legal corporation is recognized by the state. I hope and pray that Almighty God smiles and says, that's fine. I'm pleased that you kept the name that is a biblical name, and it's perfectly all right if you added the appellation international because you're going to be scattering throughout all nations and they're going to be members of other races and nations who will also be joining with you in the work that you are doing. So that the name is certainly all right in God's sight. But do I and have I ever pretended that the Church of God International is all there is? Yet, we're going to turn now to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, and I want to show you something that has been used time and time and time again. There are different ways to read the Bible, as we will see. Paul, who teaches them as the prisoner of the Lord, as they walk worthy of the vocation wherewith they're called, and he said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, verse 3, there is one body. Now, the way that has been translated by the parent organization for literally decades, is there is only one corporate 
entity. There's only one organization. I want us to understand the very broad distinction between church or ecclesia or called out ones who can be as individual as those people in Chile who are attached to the vine as completely distinct from an organization of believers, not representing all believers, but representing some believers who gather together, form an organization to do a specific work in a specific place at a specific time in history. The following statement, though a little lengthy, is axiomatic. Down through its history, from time to time, increments of the true church of Almighty God have gathered together in various different legal entities to do a work. End of axiomatic statement. That's understandable. And that admits and acknowledges that no one human leader can claim to be governing, ruling over, laying down the law to, establishing or setting doctrine for, administering all the true church. It is utterly impossible. What I said is axiomatic, and I wanted to explain that a little more, because there are administrations within the political organization, and it is not the spiritual organization at all. Now, for example, we have church brethren in the Philippines. I do not have the faintest contact with most of them. I write a letter over there maybe once every other month or so. I get a letter back once or every, every other month or so. They have their, their problems. Uh, some of those brethren down in Mindanao uh, have some personality conflict. They had a couple of brothers who kind of went their separate way. They have in one city down there near Zambolanga, the Norte or somewhere, I don't know which city exactly, in the island of Mindanao, brethren who were meeting together, but now all of a sudden, one brother who is a minister is preaching to a small group of people in the morning, and then the other brother comes in and he preaches to a small group of people in the afternoon. That's too bad. And we wish them well. And we are here to serve. And we're here for counsel and for guidance and for support in literature and even monetarily if and when we can. But that's all. We're not here to reach out and to strangle or to govern or to rule or to excommunicate or to pretend that we can solve their difficulties from thousands of miles away, for we simply cannot. There's a very viable church organization, separately incorporated, under a graduate of Bricketwood, who keeps in touch with us loyally, who may have a few little things that he believes or that he perceives or that he teaches to those people, not doctrinally, but perhaps having to do with prophecy or something that may slightly differ from us, I don't know. But I know that they are a converted group of people, of Sabbatarians, who observe the annual Holy Days, and they live in areas all over South Africa. They have quite a large church. They have certain written materials, they have a growing mailing list, they have a work going on down there. I'm not over that work. They look to me and they look to Mr. Dart and to all of us here for some cooperation, for some understanding, and once in a while perhaps for some suggestions, but not necessarily for leadership. I'm very comfortable with that. That's beautiful. Now all of a sudden we have a man who wrote to us from another of the black African nations. Ghana, 
he had been ordained by a Seventh-day Sabbatarian, or no, was it a Sunday-keeping church? Well, I forgot. Seventh-day, wasn't it? Uh, church organization, but I think it tended to be a little bit Pentecostal, but I'm not certain. We read the letter very thoroughly. He now wants to cooperate with us and submit his letter to our ministerial council. He would like to become a representative of the Church of God International and receive our materials and begin teaching our materials to those people down there in his native nation of Ghana. He is semi-literate in English and probably quite literate in his native tongue, whatever they may be, and I'm not even sure which languages he may speak. And that's beautiful. We welcome that, but we don't reach out and gather it in, corral it, and control it, and in some way exploit it. So, the same thing applies all over the world. There are indigenous groups. They look to us for support. We try to give them that support, but we don't rule over them, and we don't try to control them. It says in verse 4 of the Ephesians, the fourth chapter, there is one body. Now, I don't read there is one corporate headquarters in Pasadena, California when I read that. I just don't read it that way. I read that Almighty God is inspiring the Apostle Paul to say that God the Father is one, and Christ the Son is one, and that Jesus said, I and my Father are one, we're absolutely together, and that there is one vine and one spiritual organism worshiping the same Lord and believing in the same Bible and all pressing toward the same ultimate goal, which is the kingdom of God. And they may not even know each other. They may not be able to communicate if they did. They may be in different nations, speaking different tongues, having different organizational structures, different ways of doing things, different ways of conducting their worship services, customs, which God is a little bit uh, displeased with, but they're sincere and they don't know any better. And Maybe he can sort it out later. There, there may be some folks out there who will be drinking grape juice on the Passover until the time of the Great Tribulation, and they'll be right on in the kingdom of God. I need to stop you. But if they don't know any different, if they're completely sincere, now, you know, I'm not going to tell you that a, a sincere Baptist is going to be in the kingdom of God, because I know about the Sabbath being the Test Commandment. And I know that there are great truths that if you do not understand them and obey them, you don't even qualify to be a converted Christian. I know that. But I'm saying within the parameters of the Word of God itself, it shows me the differences, rather acute differences, between the Corinthian church and the Thessalonican church, as an example. Read about the character of those different congregations. And then I look back in history, and having known that my mom was brought to the Sabbath, by a neighbor lady who was a member of the Church of God Seventh Day, that my father was baptized by those people, having been around them and among them as a boy growing up, having gone with Wayne Cole in about 1980 to Glorieta, New Mexico, to a step to their great national conclave and preaching, speaking to all of their ministers and their brethren gathered over there, having been in their church congregation in Denver and spoken from their pulpit twice. I concur with my father's statement through all those decades of his ministry, those are God's people. But they don't understand the Holy Ghost. But they're converted. They are decent. They are good. They are loving. They are caring. They are honest. They love God. They love Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They eschew hatred 
and robbery and murder and rape and drugs and child abuse and divorce and all these rotten sins of the world. They're trying to live according to the Ten Commandments of God and the Sermon on the Mount. How can I call them anything but brethren? Now to say that I, as an organization, therefore, should seek ecumenism, and I should immediately invite them to preach in this culture, and I should be trying to preach in theirs. Why? Let me draw for you an analogy, and I hope you will understand it. Millions upon millions of Americans drive automobiles. They have to have that vehicle to get from here to there. But they don't all drive at the same time. Now, if I am a salesman of Buick, and over here there is a salesman of Ford, I do not go to the Ford sales room and give my feel for the customers coming in to browse around and look for a Ford about how great a Buick car really is. Neither does the Ford salesman come to my Buick showroom telling all the people coming in browsing around looking at a Buick that a Ford is a better product. If those people in the Church of God Seventh Day and their leaders have denied the responsibility to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Days of Unleavened Bread, why should I allow one of their ministers in the pulpit when he is going to be unable, probably, at least in his private conversation, to promote the concepts and the beliefs that he holds dear? Can I not acknowledge him as a brother, say only the nicest things about him, and go my way and do the work of God as best I can, leaving the result with God? Must I somehow be doing something vis-a-vis -vis some other organizations somewhere? Why? When all it does is create ill will and confusion and hurt feelings, why bother? I want us to understand the distinct difference between a corporate structure of human beings configured to do a work and the spiritual organism, which is the body of Jesus Christ. Now, I said the third word, church, and I didn't realize until I was talking to Larry just before we got started here today that he had prepared a sermonette along those lines, and I think he already covered it pretty adequately. And I would merely cite that there are many local congregations, and I don't believe there is a minister out there from Albuquerque to Florida, or from Florida to California, or from Ohio to Texas, who could ever stand in this pulpit and tell you Garner Ted called me one time back in 1979, or 81, or 84, or 87, or 89, because I just never did. Because, you see, we have a ministerial council, and Mr. Dart is the secretary of the ministerial council. I am one of its members. I'm not its chairman. And we meet a couple of times a year, hopefully, and sometimes more often than that if we need, and we meet on the telephone with conference calls, and we regularly circulate all types of letters and ministerial bulletins and teaching and educational material. Mr. Dart recently circulated a very fine work having to do with some heresy that a particular false teacher has been scattering, was scattering around and did a very good job on uh, spiking some guns with regard to some false teaching. And that type of communication is constant between and among us and in the ministry. I don't generate it all. I don't control it all. Those men don't work for me. They are salesmen. They are plumbing contractors. They are builders, printers. 
They are people who have their own jobs and responsibilities. And they are loyal to Jesus Christ, and they appreciate my efforts and what I'm doing, and I appreciate their efforts and what they are doing, but they are not my lackeys. I don't tell them, by the way, even though you have three kids in school, and even though your daughter's prom is next week, I want you to move to Poughkeepsie. And they just pale and pack their suitcase and go. I don't do that. Now, some people do, but I don't. We don't run the organization that way. In 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, I think there are some very beautiful verses that we need to understand in the context of the Church of God International and the way this really functions rather than the way a lot of people learned it in the past. I'm interested in the way these things are listed, shall I say, chronologically, or the way they all stack up. He says, There are diversities of gifts, verse 4, but the same Spirit. Now, there are also, if you want to look at it from the standpoint that God does give spiritual gifts according to our natural and individual abilities, or natural several abilities. And you might add education and aptitude and so on. There are diversities of gifts. And those gifts are usually apportioned according to intelligence and education and aptitude, are they not? But the same spirit. And there are differences of administration. What is an administration? It's simply just a way of doing things. It's a way of doing things. You administer certain regulations, certain rules, certain ways of doing things. We just heard an announcement. We're going to have a backpacking trip. They're going to begin from Thailand. It's going to cost a certain number of dollars. Those are the rules. It's set up by the individuals involved in putting it together. Big deal. No problem. So what? So why should people fight over that? Should we say, no, we're going to meet in Little Rock, Arkansas? There's of administration. That's not threatening. And it says differences, and it's plural. It doesn't say there is one administration. Now, when I talk about the administration yesterday said concerning short-range missiles in Europe, you know I'm talking about the Bush administration. We know churches that have one administration. But I know of the true church that it says here in the Word of God has different administrations but the same Lord. How about that? Human beings at lower levels out here on the branches who can have administrations, jobs, duties, functions, who can be assigned responsibilities, who can help the Church of God in various areas of the country or different nations, and who may administer a little differently than somebody in some other country, but they're still members of God's Church and still attached to the true vine. There are diversities of operations how can that be? How can we allow that? How can there be diversity in the church of God? But it says so in the Word of God, doesn't it? Different mechanisms, different methods, different ways of doing things. Diversities of operations. But it's the same God which works everywhere in everybody, is what that really means. There are differences, but it's the same God who works everywhere in everybody. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. Now, there may be a very wise elderly lady among us 
and most people don't even know that she has that gift. Maybe she's very sparing with her words. And only on a rare occasion in a letter or a private conversation if somebody asks her advice, are they aware, you know, that lady is really wise. This doesn't mean either, I mean, just a man, I'm sorry. It can be a lady, a woman, a girl. It can be any human being. We don't recognize that. We don't have people because we don't go around pinning badges on people. Now, over here, you know, Frank and Jim and Joe and Tom, they all have wisdom. But that basically would mean nobody else does. We don't do that. That's just obvious when people give advice. To another, the word of knowledge by the same spirit. Some people have an aptitude for learning, for reading and retention, for retaining a great deal of information. They are studious, and they tend to remember what they read. And they are knowledgeable. And other people, they're not readers. And they don't retain, and they don't listen. They don't really allow to sink into their minds statistical or documentary information or information that is worthwhile to retain and to pass on to others. They tend to forget. So they don't have that gift. No big deal. One does, one doesn't. No problem. That's why there are diversities. And that's good. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And some people are more faithful than others. I wish there was one of our number that had the gifts of healings. I really do. And I hope that someday those gifts will be in the church and return, as they were very strongly in place in the days of the apostles prior to the dispersion and prior to the days of the last years of Paul's life when he wrote to Timothy and told him to drink no longer water but a little wine for his stomach's sake and his oft infirmities because those gifts had largely waned from the church by about the time of the death of the Apostle Paul, where they were very powerfully in place in the first few months and years when Stephen was preaching, and Philip, and when James, the brother of John, was beheaded, and when Peter raised Dorcas, and when the very shadow of Peter falling across people would cause them to rise and walk when they were crippled with arthritis or who knows what kind of a disease. Faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. And I don't know, we're hearing here of a working of miracles which seems to be distinct from the gifts of healing. I know of no one that has that gift in the church today. I certainly do not. I'm not aware that I am able to work miracles. We gather every Sabbath morning. We read over all of the letters where people are crying out with their needs, and those needs are not always healing. There are kids on drugs and daughters who are pregnant with an illegitimate child, and children who have run away, and a woman who had been married for the fifth time whose fifth husband is beating her, and a grandmother who has a 15-year-old boy that is scared to death because of what's available to him in school. People just pour out their hearts and say, pray for me. That's a lot of the kinds of letters we get, and so we do. I am not aware of great miracles that suddenly the grandmother sees that her 15-year-old is walks around with a halo and kind of a spiritual bubble where he's protected. But we pray anyway. Why? Because she asked us to. But let me tell you that not a one of us is so presumptuous as to believe that the first time Almighty God in heaven above has been made, made aware of the fact this elderly grandmother really wants protection for her 15-year-old son is when we bring it to him in that room on our knees. We're not that presumptuous. We know that she got to him a long time ago. We're just adding our voice to hers because God says we should. And because she looks to us, because she did what James 5.14 says, 
and she wrote to the elders of the church, and she requires it of us. And because we perform that service, and we do it to help. And we leave the result with God. And we hope we get a letter once in a while saying, the other day a miracle occurred. That'll be wonderful when that type of thing begins to happen. And I hope that it already has. Because every time we pray, we pray very feelingly and very meaningfully, and each one of us takes turns. We don't all uh, pray. I mean, I don't every time. I don't think I have but once, the first time we met together, but maybe twice. So to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy. I have felt that I have an acute understanding of world conditions and a grasp of how things might work out, but I don't even claim to have that gift. I just think that it's been a penchant of mine more than some other folks, but I don't say that I have the gift of prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits, not just attitudes, but really being able to tell instantly if a person is demoniac or is influenced by Satan, the devil, or demons. And to another, different kinds of languages. I don't have that gift. I can speak Spanish to be understood fairly fluently, but I'm losing it a lot as the years and decades roll by with not enough study and not enough practice. Mr. Dark took a lot of French in college and can get by in French, but they're, again, not fluidly enough to carry on just rapid conversation. I don't think any of us have what I would call the gift of languages as we saw it exercised in Acts, the second chapter. I've never been to a foreign place with other tongues who heard me in their own language, but if and when God wants to give that gift, he will. It was in the church in the past, and it can be in the future. To another, interpretation of languages. But these all work that one and self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally or individually according as he will. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. And in verse 18... It says, Now has God set the members, individual members, every one of them in the body as it has pleased him. And then follows the analogy of the human physical body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor to the feet, I have no need of you, verse 21. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. So God wants each of us to appreciate our uniqueness, our own specific contribution, our own function in the church, and as he says, every man ought not to think more highly of himself than he should, but each man consider the other one's things or qualities or gifts, and to humble himself and to be as equal in God's church. For several years we have struggled with a lack of sufficient leaders. We have had people who have preached and they've tried to do so sincerely and generously and with goodwill, who are not capable of preaching, who have not been given the gift of preaching, and who shouldn't preach. It's hard for us to tell such individuals, you shouldn't preach anymore. And you can understand how hard that is, because their attitudes are right, and they're trying to perform a service. But when people who listen to them simply refuse to come, and want to go down the road and listen to a tape from Tyler. We have a problem. How do we handle that? We don't want to hurt his feelings. We don't want to see the brother offended and leave the church. So we have a problem. We try to handle it as best we can. Because we assign certain individuals as hosts, many of them women, from time to time, 
not in the case of women, but some of the men in past years, all the way back to the late 70s and early 80s, have wanted to become a minister when they were really not called to the ministry. I know that we have a desperate need, and hopefully by 1990 we've made a few little statements, we've sent out a couple of letters, we've tried to get some applications in, we just have not had the response, we have not had sufficient applications of enough qualified individuals to yet begin an academy at the collegiate grade to train future ministers for God's church and workers at all levels, not just ministers to be in a pulpit preaching, but other people with other gifts to perform other functions as well. I know this, that when qualified people came to Ambassador College who were perhaps just conversationalists but had never spoken at all in their lives, never got on their feet in front of a group of two people and said anything formally, but you put them in basic speech and you open up the textbook and you take them through concentrated routines of voice development. They sign up for special voice training. They maybe join the chorale. And all that year, they come to speech class and they practice raising and lowering the voice and they practice diction and elocution and articulation and they go through all new kinds of words and each week they have brand new, maybe ten new vocabulary words and next week they get tested on them like lugubrious or inculcate or whatever, new words that they've never heard before to pepper their speech with new words that have meaning and they're poignant and they get evaluated, and they give a four-minute speech, and a six-minute speech, and they give a speech that is supposed to be very carefully constructed that moves toward a specific ending. They give one that is an attack speech. They give one that is called an icebreaker. And then we have the ambassador club, who are over a formal dinner with the ladies present. They do the same thing, and they're evaluated. And the evaluator is evaluated by an overall evaluator. And the spokesman's clubs in the church did that. And it is fantastic training. And in four solid years, first year, second year, third year, fourth year speech class, sometimes rolling up a magazine and beating it to death trying to make a point, you find some kids who came to college that couldn't talk their way out of a parking ticket who could go down here to the Kiwanis Club and hold them spellbound, who are educated, who are qualified, articulate, good, powerful preachers of God's Word. I get a little bit sick and tired with an attitude that says that Ambassador College education was worthless. It was the best education available in the face of God's good green earth at that time. I know because it's why I know how to speak. I want to take all I know about Ambassador College and all I know about how to teach young people, or older people, or middle-aged people, and get them in classrooms, and teach them to be leaders and teachers in God's church. And only when we get that going and start really getting qualified ministers, I could mention so many of them, I'd like to clone men like, uh, you know, well, I don't. I hate to mention names because I mentioned five, six, or eight of them out in the field, and men like Charlie Gross. I'll just stay here locally. But you know, I could just mention a whole lot of names right quickly of young men that are good speakers and good preachers and good ministers out there in the field. I'd like to clone them and have about ten each, because we have church areas 
where we're crying out for leadership, I could be going to church areas, to cities all over the United States, and raising up a local church of 20, 30, 40 people practically every week if we had a minister who could be there, who could help those people and guide them and be a shepherd. So I wanted you to know why you're in the women's club today. I don't think you're going to be here very long. I want you to pray about that property. The deal is not complete yet, but I think that it's right there. And I think we're going to enjoy being able to meet out there in the woods for a while and take our basket lunches and walk out of doors and down to the lake and open up some fried chicken and, and have the kids. Maybe we can build a picnic area where we can have some swings and slides for the smaller kids and some things that they will enjoy. And I think we will have quite a good time meeting in that until the time when we sell the office and begin to build larger buildings. And then we'll move into what we're going to occupy as a church building. Guess what we're going to do with that? Print shop and storage for booklets and bulk mailing and so on. We'll just make it a kind of a factory kind of a building, but we'll make it nice and clean and neat and attractive inside. And the church will meet in it for a certain period of time. And we think that's wise and saving money and the right way to go. But I think we can enjoy the women's club in the interim, and it won't be too long, hopefully, before we'll have our own place in which to meet. Where the ecclesia, which is the spiritual part of the organism and a part of the branch that is joined to the vine, will meet in the church building that is a part of the corporation of the Church of God International of Tyler, Texas.